0: and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Tonight's story is a murder that has stumped authorities in Toledo, Ohio, for 40 years. It's one of those cases all the more mysterious because the victim has never been found, The circumstances of her disappearance never learned, and the motive never clear. Cynthia Jane Anderson was 20 years old when she vanished on August the 4th, 1981. Cindy, that's what they called her, was a petite, 5 foot 4 inches and 115 pounds, a pretty girl with brown hair and brown eyes but she was haunted by nightmares. The year before, she often spoke to her mom about being plagued by dreams in which she was abducted from her home and murdered by a stranger. But what can you say to someone who tells you they're having nightmares? We all have bizarre dreams, don't we? You shake them off and forget about them. Because for most of us, those dreams don't come true. Now, for the time being, Cindy was working as a secretary at the law offices of James Rabbit and Jay Feldstein on East Manhattan Boulevard in Toledo. But that wasn't her end game. She was a devout Christian fundamentalist who had plans to quit her job to begin Bible college with her boyfriend. She and Jeff Lemke had been admitted to William Tyndale College in Farmington Hills, Michigan. And she only had 10 days left in the law office. In a kind of strange way, she always saw her time at the law office as missionary work, a different way of serving people who were in need. The last day anyone saw Cindy, she went to work that morning as usual. It was a typical hot, muggy, late summer day. Cindy had skipped breakfast, then left her parents' home in Bedford Township about 8.30 a.m. She was driving her white 1980 Chevy Citation. She wore a white V-neck dress with red piping, open-toe sandals, a sapphire ring, a gold watch, and she carried a brown purse. Usually, she was the only one at the office in the morning, as the attorneys generally started their days in court. So throughout the morning, she always kept the office doors locked. At noon, two of her co-workers arrived to begin their days, but the office was empty. The doors were locked, but Cindy wasn't inside, though clearly she had been. Mail was placed inside the front door, the radio was on, as were the lights and the air conditioner, and she had prepared her employer's desks for the day in the way that she always did. The only items that seemed to be missing were Cindy's car keys and her purse, although her car was still locked and sitting in that parking lot outside. There was no evidence of a forced entry, no sign of a struggle. Cindy sometimes had occasion to leave the office, and when she did, she always left a note on the door. There was no note. So the lack of a note and that locked and empty car sitting outside told attorney James Rabbit that something was up. You knew right away something was wrong, Rabbit told the Toledo Blade for a 20th anniversary story in 2001 you knew she wasn't coming back. The lawyers called Cindy's family to ask if they had heard from her. Christine Savage, Cindy's older sister, remember their hearts pounding at the question, why would her office be calling to ask such a thing? Cindy's dad, Michael Anderson, he rushed home from his job as an air conditioner repairman. His wife, Margaret, was already inside the house, surrounded by friends and family. A prayer chain had begun. Police poured over the scene at the office and reported this really odd find. Lying on Cindy's desk was a romance novel she had been reading. The book was open to a page about the violent abduction of the main character. Was that a coincidence? or a clue. Cindy's family never thought she walked away on her own. She had no reason to leave. She was happy, got along well with her boyfriend, and was looking forward to starting college. But then again, her father did notice she had been dieting and spending more time on her appearance in recent weeks. Did that mean anything? From the start, police suspected foul play. The investigation revealed that people had talked to Cindy on the office phone as late as 9.45 a.m., but the people trying to call at 10 a.m. couldn't get an answer. Investigators believed whatever happened happened between 9.45 and 10. There were other odd things that deserved police attention. In the weeks before Cindy went missing, She had taken some suspicious phone calls at the office, calls that left her nervous. A client of the office named Larry Mullins told police he witnessed two such calls the day before Cindy vanished. He said Cindy seemed scared after she hung up, and he asked her if anything was wrong. She could only say she had received similar calls, but didn't explain exactly what had been said. Because of those calls, Cindy's bosses had installed an emergency buzzer at her desk that summer. The alarm was never triggered. Here's another weird thing. On an exterior wall near Cindy's office, someone had spray-painted the words, I love you, Cindy, GW. But nobody knew who had written it, and nobody confessed to it. Cindy had first noticed it about 10 months earlier. The script had remained on that wall for about six months before it was finally painted over, and then, disturbingly, it reappeared. The police interviewed a handful of people they could find with the initials GW, including a maintenance man who had keys to the office, but they couldn't connect any of them to her disappearance. It took a few years, by the way, but police eventually learned the identity of GW. And they reported that they believed the writer was addressing a different Cindy altogether and that it just wasn't connected to the case. Then there was this diversion. A month after Cindy vanished, police got a tip saying Cindy was alive and being held against her will. The caller was a woman. She spoke very nervously and wouldn't tell police her name, only that Cindy was being held in the basement of a white house. She wouldn't give them the address, only that there were two houses, side by side, owned by the same family, and that everyone in the family was out of town, with the exception of the son, who was holding Cindy prisoner. The tipster called twice, but both times she hung up as soon as police tried asking questions. Police never received a third call and still have no idea if that call was a hoax or legitimate. There have been a handful of persons of interest over the years. According to a 2011 anniversary piece in the Toledo Blade, Cindy disappeared during a particularly violent time in the city. Police were investigating serial killers and a number of other gruesome homicides so there was no shortage of speculation as to what might have happened to her. Years later, a pair of brothers, Anthony and Nathaniel Cook, would be found responsible for nine rapes and murders of women in the Toledo area between 1973 and 1981. Their guilt was established in the late 1990s thanks to DNA profiling but they denied having anything to do with Cindy. Technically, they still have never been ruled out as suspects. The closest police ever thought they were to closing this case happened in 1994. That was 14 years after her disappearance. An attorney named Richard Neller and a drug dealer he represented, Jose Rodriguez Jr. were both indicted and convicted of drug trafficking. Neller worked in Cindy's law firm when she disappeared. Is it possible she overheard something about their conspiracy? That theory gained some weight when an informant testified at Rodriguez's trial that Rodriguez had confessed to killing Cindy as a way to send a message to Neller about not representing him adequately. At a previous trial. The informant said Rodriguez told him he had shot her with a 9 millimeter handgun. But there was no way to prove it and no way to trust the motive of a jailhouse snitch. And even if Rodriguez had said that, there's no way to be sure he was telling the truth or just maybe trying to give himself some prison cred. In the end, the judge ruled that the testimony was unreliable. One thing authorities are pretty certain of, Cindy did not leave on her own. She left behind a substantial amount of money in a bank account that has never been touched. Her social security was never used after 1981. But detectives in Toledo never stopped looking. One investigator, Bill Adams, told reporters he would search ravines and sewers on his days off. I used to think of her every day, even after I retired, he said. Cindy's parents died without knowing what happened to their daughter. Her mom passed away in 1982, her dad in 2008. Michael Anderson spent the rest of his life wanting to believe his daughter had amnesia and that any day she might call and say her memory was recovered. It's how he got himself through the next 28 years after Cindy's disappearance. He wouldn't sell his home on Springbrook Drive, the only home Cindy had ever known. He wouldn't change his phone number to make sure she could reach him at any time. He refused to hold a memorial service or have his daughter declared dead. I expect that phone to ring at any time, he told a reporter 20 years after Cindy vanished. Maybe this afternoon. And you could almost understand how he could make himself believe it. Because from an evidence perspective, there wasn't a single solid clue as to where Cindy was, and not a shred of evidence as to what happened that August morning in 1981. That's it for our midweek 10 minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. Hello, this is Gary Chahot, welcoming you to check out the French history podcast. and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.